0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Chapter 13 of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE MAN WHO CAME TO Montreux. It was two months after the great trial, on a warm day in October, when Frank Merrill stepped ashore from the big white paddle-boat which had carried him across Lake Le Monde from Luzon, and handing his bag to a porter, made his way to the hotel omnibus. He looked at his watch. It pointed to a quarter to four, and May was not due to arrive until half-past. He went to his hotel. "'washed and changed and came down to the vestibule to inquire "'if the instructions he had telegraphed had been carried out. "'May was arriving in company with Saul Arthur Mann, "'who was taking one of his rare holidays abroad. "'Frank had only seen the girl once since the day of the trial. "'He had come to breakfast on the following morning, "'and very little had been said. "'He was due to leave that afternoon for the continent. "'He had a little money, sufficient for his needs,' and Jasper Cole had offered no suggestion that he would dispute the will, in so far as it affected Frank. So he had gone abroad and had idled away two months in France, Spain, and Italy, and had then made his leisurely way back to Switzerland by way of Maggiore. He had grown a little graver, was a little more set in his movements, but he bore upon his face no mark to indicate the mental agony through which he must have passed in that long-drawn-out and wearisome trial. So thought the girl as she came through the swing-doors of the hotel, past the obsequious hotel servants, and greeted him in the big palm-court. If she saw any change in him he remarked a development in her which was a little short of wonderful. She was at that age when the woman is breaking through the beautiful chrysalis of girlhood. In those two months a remarkable change had come over her, a change which he could not for the moment define, for this phenomenon of development had been denied to his experience. Why may, he said, you are quite old. She laughed, and again he noticed the change. The laugh was richer, sweeter, purer than the bubbling trouble he had known. You are not getting complimentary, are you? she asked. She was exquisitely dressed, and had that poise which few English women achieve. She had the art of wearing clothes, and from the flimsy crest of her toque to the tips of her little feet she was all that the most exacting critic could desire. There are well-dressed women who are no more than mannequins. There are fine ladies who cannot be mistaken for anything but fine ladies, whose dresses are a horror and an abomination, and whose expressed tastes are execrable. May Nuttall was a fine lady, finely apparelled. When you have finished admiring me, Frank, she said, tell us what you have been doing. But first of all, let us have some tea. You know, Mr. Mr. Mann, The little investigator, beaming in the background, took Frank's hand and shook it heartily. He was dressed in what he thought was an appropriate costume for a mountainous country. His boots were stout, the woolen stockings which covered his very thin legs were very woolen, and his knickerbocker suit was warranted to stand wear and tear. He had abandoned his top hat for a large golf cap, which was perched rakishly over one eye. Frank looked round apprehensively for Saul Arthur's Alpenstock and was relieved when he failed to discover one. The girl threw off her fur wrap and unbuttoned her gloves as the waiter placed the big silver tray on the table before her. "'I am afraid I have not much to tell,' said Frank in answer to her question. "'I have just been loafing around. What is your news?' "'What is my news?' she asked. "'I don't think I have any, except that everything is going very smoothly in England, and, oh, Frank, I am so immensely rich!' He smiled. The appropriate thing would be to say that I am immensely poor, he said, but as a matter of fact I am not. I went down to weeks and won quite a lot of money. "'Won it?' she said. He nodded with an amused little smile. "'You wouldn't have thought I was a gambler, would you?' he asked solemnly. "'I don't think I am, as a matter of fact, but somehow I wanted to occupy my mind.' "'I understand,' she said quickly. Another little pause while she poured out the tea which afforded Saul Arthur Mann an opportunity of firing off fifty facts about Geneva in as many sentences. "'What has happened to Jasper?' asked Frank, after a while. The girl flushed a little. "'Oh, Jasper,' she said awkwardly. "'I see him, you know. He has become more mysterious than ever, quite like one of those wicked people one reads about in sensational stories. He has a laboratory somewhere in the country, and he does quite a lot of motoring.' I've seen him several times at Brighton, for instance. Frank nodded slowly. I should think that he was a good driver, he said. salt the man looked up and met his eye with a smile which was lost upon the girl. He has been kind to me, she said hesitatingly. Does he ever speak about... She shook her head. I don't want to think about that, she said. Please don't let us talk about it. He knew she was referring to John Minnott's death, and changed the conversation. A few minutes later he had an opportunity of speaking with Mr. Mann. "'What is the news?' he asked. Saw so, like, looked round. "'I think we are getting near the truth,' he said, dropping his voice. "'One of my men has had him under observation ever since the day of the trial. There is no doubt that he is really a brilliant chemist.' "'Have you a theory?' "'I have several,' said Mr. Mann. I am perfectly satisfied that the unfortunate fellow we saw together on the occasion of our first meeting was Rex Holland's servant. I was as certain that he was poisoned by a very powerful poisoning. When your trial was on the body was exhumed and examined, and the presence of that drug was discovered. It was the same as that employed in the case of the chauffeur. Obviously Rex Holland is a clever chemist. I wanted to see you about that. He said at the trial that he had discussed such matters with you. Frank nodded. "'We used to have quite long talks about drugs,' he said. "'I have recalled many of those conversations since the day of the trial. He even fired me with his enthusiasm, and I used to assist him in his little experiments and obtain quite a working knowledge of these particular elements. Unfortunately, I cannot remember very much, for my enthusiasm soon died, and beyond the fact that he employed hyacinth and Indian hemp, I have only the dimmest recollection of any of the constituents he employed." Saul Arthur nodded energetically. "'I shall have more to tell you later, perhaps,' he said, but at present my inquiries are shaping quite nicely. He is going to be a difficult man to catch, because if all I believe is true, he is one of the most cold-blooded and calculating men it has ever been my lot to meet. And I have met a few,' he added grimly. When he said men, Frank knew that he had meant criminals. We are probably doing him a horrible injustice, he smiled. Poor old Jasper! You are not cut out for police work, snapped Saul Arthur Mann. You've too many sympathies. I don't exactly sympathize, rejoined Frank, but I just pity him in a way. Again Mr. Mann looked round cautiously and again lowered his voice, which had risen. There is one thing I want to talk to you about. It is a rather delicate matter, Mr. Merrill, he said. Fire ahead! It is about Miss Nuttall. She has seen a lot of our friend Jasper, and after every interview she seems to grow more and more reliant upon his help. Once or twice she has been embarrassed when I have spoken about Jasper Cole and has changed the subject." Frank pursed his lips thoughtfully, and a hard little look came into his eyes, which did not promise well for Jasper. "'So that is it,' he said, and shrugged his shoulders. "'If she cares for him it is not my business. But it is your business, said the other sharply. She was fond enough of you to offer to marry you." Further talk was cut short by the arrival of the girl. Their meeting at Geneva had been to some extent a chance one. She was going through to Chamonix to spend the winter, and Saul Arthur Mann seized the opportunity of taking a short and pleasant holiday. Hearing that Frank was in Switzerland she had telegraphed him to meet her. "'Are you staying any time in Switzerland?' she asked him, as they strolled along the beautiful quay. I am going back to London to-night," he replied. "'Tonight?' she said in surprise. He nodded. "'But I am staying here for two or three days,' she protested. I intended also staying for two or three days," he smiled, but my business will not wait. Nevertheless she persuaded him to stay till the morrow. They were at breakfast when the morning mail was delivered, and Frank noted that she went rapidly through the dozen letters which came to her, and she chose one for first reading. He could not help but see that that bore an English stamp, and his long acquaintance with the curious calligraphy of Jasper Cole left him in no doubt as to who was the correspondent. He saw with what eagerness she read the letter, the little look of disappointment when she turned to an inside-sheet and found that it had not been filled, and his mind was made up. He had a post also, which he examined with some evidence of impatience. "'Your mail is not so nice as mine,' said the girl with a smile. It is not nice at all, he grumbled. The one thing I wanted, and to be very truthful, May, the one inducement to stay over the night, she added, was—what? I have been trying to buy a house on the lake, he said, and the infernal agent at Luzon promised to write telling me whether my terms had been agreed to by his client. He looked down at the table and frowned. Saul the man had a great and extensive knowledge of human nature. He had remarked the disappointment on Frank's face having identified also the correspondent whose letter claimed priority of attention. He knew that Frank's anger with the house agent was very likely the expression of his anger in quite another direction. Can I send the letter on, suggested the girl. That won't help me, said Frank with a little grimace. I wanted to settle the business this week. I have it, she said. I will open the letter and telegraph to you in Paris whether the terms are accepted or not. Frank laughed. It hardly seems worth that," he said, but I should take it as awfully kind of you if you would, May. Saul Arthur man believed in his mind that Frank did not care tuppence whether the agent accepted the terms or not, but that he had taken this as a heaven-sent opportunity for veiling his annoyance. You have had quite a large mail, Miss Nuttall, he said. I've only opened one, though. It is from Jasper, she said hurriedly. Again both men noticed the faint flush, the strange, unusual light which came to her eyes. "'And where does Jasper write from?' asked Frank, steadying his voice. "'He writes from England, but he was going on the continent to Holland the day he wrote,' she said. "'It is funny to think that he is here.' "'In Switzerland?' asked Frank in surprise. "'Don't be silly,' she laughed. "'No, I mean on the mainland. I mean there is no sea between us.' She went crimson. "'It sounds thrilling,' said Frank dryly. She flashed round at him. "'You mustn't be horrid about Jasper,' she said quickly. "'He never speaks about you unkindly.' "'I don't see why he should,' said Frank. "'But let's get off a subject which is—' "'Which is what?' she challenged. "'Which is controversial,' said Frank diplomatically. She came down to the station to see him off. As he looked out of the window, waving his farewells, he thought he had never seen a more lovely being or one more desirable. It was in the afternoon of that day which saw Frank Merrill speeding toward the Swiss frontier in Paris that Mr. Rex Holland strode into the palace hotel at Montreux and seated himself at a table in the restaurant. The hour was late and the room was almost deserted. Giovanni, the head waiter, recognized him and came hurriedly across the room. Ah, monsieur, he said, you are back from England. I didn't expect you till the winter sports had started. Is Paris very dull? I didn't come through Paris," said the other shortly. "'There are many roads leading to Switzerland.' "'But few pleasant roads, monsieur. I have come to Montreux by all manner of ways, from Paris through Pontarlier, through Ostend, Brussels, through the Hook of Holland and Amsterdam, but Paris is the only way for the man who is flying to this beautiful land.' The man at the table said nothing, scanning the menu carefully. He looked tired as one who had taken a very long journey. It may interest you to know he said, after he had given his order, and as Giovanni was turning away, that I came by the longest route. Tell me, Giovanni, have you a man called Merrill staying at the hotel? No, monsieur said the other is he a friend of yours, Mr. Rex Holland smiled in a sense, he is a friend in a sense he is not. he said flippantly, and offered no further enlightenment, although Giovanni waited with a deferential cock of his head. Later, when he had finished his modest dinner, he strolled into the one long street of the town, returning to the writing-room of the hotel with a number of papers which included the visitors' list, a publication printed in English, and which, as it related the comings and goings of visitors, not only to Lausanne, Montreux, and Teretet, but also to Ebion and Geneva, enjoyed a fair circulation. He sat at the table, and drawing a sheet of paper from the rack, wrote, addressed an envelope to Frank Merrill, Esquire, Hotel de France, Geneva, slipped it into the hotel pillar-box, and went to bed. "'There's a letter here for Frank,' said the girl. "'I wonder if it is from his agent.' She examined the envelope which bore the Montreux postmark. "'I should imagine it is,' said Saul Arthur Mann. "'Well, I'm going to open it anyway,' said the girl. "'Poor Frank! He will be in a state of suspense.' She tore open the envelope and took out a letter. Mr. Mann saw her face go white, and then the letter trembled in her hand. Without a word she passed it to him, and he read, "'Dear Frank Merrill,' said the letter, "'Give me another month's grace, and then you may tell the whole story. Yours, Rex Holland.' Saul Arthur Mann stared at the letter with open mouth. "'What does it mean?' asked the girl in a whisper. It means that Merrill is shielding somebody, said the other. It means-suddenly his face lit up with excitement. The writing, he gasped. Her eyes followed his, and for a moment she did not understand. Then, with a lightning sweep of her arm, she snatched the letter from his hand and crumpled it in a ball. The writing, said Mr. Mann again. I've seen it before. It is Jasper Coles. She looked at him steadily her face was white, and the hand which grasped the crumpled paper was shaking. I think you were mistaken, Mr. Mann, she said quietly. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Man Who Looked Like Frank Saul Arthur Mann came back to England full of his news, and found Frank at the little Jermaine Street Hotel, where he had installed himself, and Frank listened without interruption to the story of the letter. Of course the little fellow went on, I went straight over to Montreux. The note heading was not on the paper, but I had no difficulty by comparing the qualities of papers used at the various hotels, and discovering that it was written from the palace. The head-waiter knew this Rex Holland who had been a frequent visitor, had always tipped very liberally, and lived in something like style. He could not describe his patron, except that he was a young man with a very languid manner, who had arrived the previous morning from Holland and had immediately inquired for Frank Merrill. "'From Holland? Are you sure it was the morning? I have a particular reason for asking,' asked Frank quickly. "'No, it was not in the morning, now you mention it. It was in the evening.' He left again the following morning by the northern train. "'How did he find my address?' asked Frank. "'Obviously from the visitors' list. The waiter on duty in the writing-room remembered having seen him consulting the newspaper. "'Now, my boy, you have to be perfectly candid with me. What do you know about Rex Holland?' Frank opened his case, took out a cigarette, and lit it before he replied. "'I know what everybody else knows about him,' he said, with a hint of bitterness in his voice, and something which nobody knows but me. "'But, my dear fellow,' said Saul Arthur Mann, laying his hand on the other's shoulder, "'surely you realize how important it is for you that you should tell me all you know.' Frank shook his head. "'The time is not come,' he said, and he would make no further statement. But on another matter he was emphatic. "'By heaven, man!' I am not going to stand by and see May ruin her life. There's something sinister in this influence which Jasper is exercising over her. You have seen it for yourself." Saul Arthur nodded. "'I can't understand what it is,' he confessed. Of course Jasper is not a bad-looking fellow. He has perfect manners and is a charming companion. You don't think—' "'That he is winning on his merits?' Frank shook his head. "'No, indeed, I do not.' It is difficult for me to discuss my private affairs, and you know how reluctant I am to do so, but you are also aware of what I think of May. I was hoping that we should go back to the place where we left off, and although she is kindness itself, this girl who was more to me than anything or anybody in the world, and who was prepared to marry me, and would have married me but for Jasper's machinations, was almost cold. He was walking up and down the room, and now halted in his stride and spread out his arms despairingly. "'What am I to do? I cannot lose her. I cannot!' There was a fierceness in his tone which revealed the depth of his feeling, and Saul Arthur Mann understood. "'I think it is too soon to say you have lost her, Frank,' he said. He had conceived a genuine liking for Frank Merrill, and the period of tribulation through which the young man had passed had heightened the respect in which he held him. "'We shall see the light in dark places before we go much farther,' he said. "'There is something behind this crime, Frank, which I don't understand, but which I am certain is no mystery to you. I am sure you are shielding somebody. For what reason I am not in a position to tell, but I will get to the bottom of it.' No event in the interesting life of this little man, who had spent his years in the accumulation of facts, had so distressed and piqued him as the murder of John Minnit. The case had ended where the trial had left it. Crawley, who might have offered a new aspect to the tragedy, had disappeared as completely as though the earth had swallowed him. The most strenuous efforts which the official police had made, added to the investigations which Saul Arthur had conducted independently, had failed to trace the fugitive ex-sergeant of police. Obviously he was not to be confounded with Rex Holland. He was a distinct personality working possibly in collusion but there the association ended. It had occurred to the investigator that possibly Crawley had accompanied Rex Holland in his flight, but the most careful inquiries which he had pursued at Montreux were fruitless in this respect as in all others. To add to his bewilderment, investigations nearer at home were constantly bringing him across the track of Frank Merrill. It was as though fate had conspired to show the boy in the blackest light. Frank had been acting as secretary to his uncle, and then Jasper Cole had suddenly appeared upon the scene from nowhere in particular. The suggestion had been made somewhat vaguely that he had come from abroad, and it was certain that he arrived as a result of long negotiations which John Middon himself had conducted. They were negotiations which involved months of correspondence, no letter of which either from one or the other had Frank seen. While the trial was pending. The little man collected quite a volume of information, both from Frank and the girl. But nothing had been quite as inexplicable as this intrusion of Jasper Cole upon the scene, or the extraordinary mystery which John Minnett had made of his engagement. He had written and posted all the letters to Jasper himself, and had apparently received the replies, which he had burned at some other address of which Frank was ignorant. Jasper had come, and then one day there had been a quarrel not between the two young men, but between Frank and his uncle. It was a singularly bitter quarrel, and again Frank refused to discuss the cause. He left the impression upon Saul Arthur's mind that he had to some extent been responsible. And here was another fact which puzzled the man who knew. Sergeant Smith, as he was then, had been to some extent responsible. It was Frank who had introduced the sergeant to Eastbourne and brought him to his uncle but this was only one aspect of the mystery. There were others as obscure. Saul Arthur Mann went back to his bureau, and for the twentieth time gathered the considerable dossiers he had accumulated relating to the case and to the characters, and went through them systematically and carefully. He left his office near midnight, but at nine o'clock the next morning was on his way to Eastbourne. Constable Wiseman was, by good fortune, enjoying a day's holiday and was at work in his kitchen garden when Mr. Mann's car pulled up before the cottage. Wiseman received his visitor importantly, for, though the constable's prestige was regarded in official circles as having diminished as a result of the trial, it was felt by the villagers that their policeman, if he had not solved the mystery of John Minnett's death, had at least gone a long way to its solution. In the spotless room which was half-kitchen and half-sitting-room, with its red-tiled floor covered by bright matting, Mrs. Wiseman produced a well-dusted Windsor chair which she placed at Saul Arthur Mann's disposal before she politely vanished. In a very few words the investigator stated his errand, and Constable Wiseman listened in noncommittal silence. When his visitor had finished, he shook his head. "'The only thing about the sergeant I know,' he said— I have already told the chief constable who sat in that very chair, he explained. He was always a bit of a mystery the sergeant, I mean. When he was tanked, if I may use the expression, he would tell you stories by the hour. But when he was sober you couldn't get a word out of him. His daughter only lived with him for about a fortnight." "'His daughter?' said Mr. Mann, quickly. "'He had a daughter, as I have already notified my superior,' said Constable Wiseman gravely. "'Rather a pretty girl. I never saw much of her, but she was in Eastbourne off and on for about a fortnight after the sergeant came. Funny thing, I happened to know the day he arrived, because the wheel of his fly came off on my beat, and I noticed the circumstances according to law and reported the same. I don't even know if she was living with him. He had a cottage down at Burlham Gap, and that is where I saw her. Yes, she was a pretty girl, he said reminiscently, one of the slim and slender kind very dark and with a complexion like milk. But they never found her, he said. Again Mr. Mann interrupted. You mean the police? Constable Wiseman shook his head. Oh, no, he said. They've been looking for her for years, long before Mr. Minnett was killed. Who are they? Well, several people, said the constable slowly. I happen to know that Mr. Cole wanted to find out where she was. But then he didn't start searching until weeks after she disappeared. It is very rum, mused Constable Wiseman, the way Mr. Cole went about it. He didn't come straight to us and ask our assistance, but he had a lot of private detectives nosing round Eastbourne, one of them happened to be a cousin of my wife's. So we got to know all about it. Cole spent a lot of money trying to trace her, and so did Mr. Minute. Saul so Arthur Mann saw a faint gleam of daylight. Mr. Minute, too? he asked. Was he working with Mr. Cole? So far as I can find out, they were both working independent of the other. Mr. Cole and Mr. Minnen, explained Mr. Wiseman, it is what I call a mystery within a mystery, and it has never been properly cleared up. I thought something was coming out about it at the trial, but you know what a mess the lawyers made of it. It was Constable Wiseman's firm conviction that Frank Merrill had escaped through the incompetence of the Crown authorities. And there were moments in his domestic circle when he was bitter and even insubordinate on the subject. You still think Mr. Merrill was guilty? asked Saul Arthur Mann as he took his leave of the other. I am as sure of it as I am that I am standing here, said the constable, not without a certain pride in the consistency of his view. Didn't I go into the room? Wasn't he there with the deceased? Wasn't his revolver found? Hadn't there been some jiggery-pokery with his books in London? Saul Arthur Mann smiled. "'There are some of us who think differently, Constable,' he said, shaking hands with the implacable officer of the law. He brought back to London a few new facts to be added to his record of Sergeant Crawley, alias Smith, and on these he went painstakingly to work. As he had already explained, Saul Arthur Mann had a particularly useful relationship with Scotland Yard, and fortunately, about that time, He was on the most excellent terms with official police headquarters, for he had been able to assist them in running to earth one of the most powerful blackmailing gangs that had ever operated in Europe. His files had been drawn upon to such good purpose that the police had secured convictions against the seventeen members of the gang who were in England. He sought an interview with the chief commissioner, and that same night, accompanied by a small army of detectives, he made a systematic search of Silver's rents the house into which jasper cole had been seen to enter was again raided and again without result the house was empty save for one room a big room which was simply furnished with a truckle-bed a table a chair a lamp and a strip of carpet there were four rooms two upstairs which were never used and two on the ground floor at the end of a passage was a kitchen which also was empty save for a length of bamboo ladder From the kitchen a bolted door led on to a tiny square of yard which was separated by three walls from yards of similar dimensions to the left and right, and to the back of the premises. At the back of Silver's rents was Royston Court, which was another cul-de-sac running parallel with Silver's rents. Mr. Mann returned to the house and again searched the upstairs rooms, looking particularly for a trap-door, for the bamboo ladder suggested some such exit this time, however, he completely failed. Jasper Cole, he found, had made only one visit to the house since John Minnett's death. It is a curious fact, as showing the localizing of interest, that Silver's rents knew nothing of what had occurred almost at its doors, and though it had at its fingertips all the gossip of the docks and the Thames ironworks, it was profoundly ignorant of what was common property in Royston Court. It is even more remarkable that Saul Arthur Mann, with his squadron of detectives, should have confined their investigations to Silver's rents. The investigator was baffled and disappointed, but by the oddest of chances he was to pick up yet another thread of the minute mystery, a thread which, however, was to lead him into an even deeper maze than that which he had already and so unsuccessfully attempted to penetrate. Three days after his search of Silver's rents, business took Mr. Mann to Camden Town, To be exact, he had gone at the request of the police to Holloway jail to see a prisoner who would turn state's evidence on a matter in which the police and Mr. Mann were equally interested. Very foolishly, he had dismissed his taxi, and when he emerged from the doors there was no conveyance in sight. He decided, rather than take the trams which would have carried him to King's Cross, to walk, and since he hated main roads, he had taken a shortcut which, as he knew, would lead him into the Hampstead Road. Thus he found himself in Flower Town Road, a thoroughfare of respectable detached houses occupied by the superior industrial type. He was striding along, swinging his umbrella and humming, as was his wont, an unmusical rendering of a popular tune, when his attention was attracted to a sight which took his breath away and brought him to a halt. It was half-past five and dull, but his eyesight was excellent and it was impossible for him to make a mistake. The houses of Flowerton Road stand back and are separated from the sidewalk by diminutive gardens. The front doors are approached by six or seven steps, and it was on the top of one of these flights in front of an open door that the scene was enacted which brought Mr. Mann to a standstill. The characters were a young man and a girl. The girl was extremely pretty and very pale. The man was the exact double of Frank Merrill. He was dressed in a rough tweed suit and wore a soft felt hat with a fairly wide brim. But it was not the appearance of this remarkable apparition which startled the investigator. It was the attitude of the two people. The girl was evidently pleading with her companion. Saw Arthur the man was too far away to hear what she said, but he saw the young man shake himself loose from the girl. She again grasped his arm and raised her face imploringly. Mr. Mann gasped for he saw the young man's hand come up and strike her back into the house. Then he caught hold of the door and banged it savagely, walked down the stairs and, turning, hurried away. The investigator stood as though he were rooted to the spot, and before he could recover himself the fellow had turned the corner of the road and was out of sight. Saul Arthur Mann took off his hat and wiped his forehead. All his initiative was for the moment paralyzed. He walked slowly up to the gate and hesitated. What excuse could he have for calling? If this were frank, assuredly his own views were all wrong, and the mystery was a greater mystery still. His energies began to reawaken. He took a note of the number of the house and hurried off after the young man. When he turned the corner his quarry had vanished. He hurried to the next corner, but without overtaking the object of his pursuit. Fortunately, at this moment, he found an empty taxicab and hailed it. Grimm's Hotel... GERMAN STREET, he directed. At least he could satisfy his mind upon one point. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace This LibriVox recording is in the Public Domain. A Letter in the Great Grimm's Hotel is in reality a block of flats with a restaurant attached. The restaurant is little more than a kitchen from whence meals are served to residents in their rooms. Frank's suite was on the third floor, and Mr. Men, paying his cabman, hurried into the hall, stepped into the automatic lift, pressed the button, and was deposited at Frank's door. He knocked with a sickening sense of apprehension that there would be no answer. To his delight and amazement, he heard Frank's firm step in the tiny hall of his flat, and the door was opened. Frank was in the act of dressing for dinner. "'Come in, S.A.M., he said cheerily, and tell me all the news.' He led the way back to his room and resumed the delicate task of tying his dress bow. "'How long have you been here?' asked Mr. Mann. Frank looked at him inquiringly. "'How long have I been here?' he repeated. "'I cannot tell you the exact time, but I have been here since a short while after lunch.' Mr. Mann was bewildered and still unconvinced. "'What clothes did you take off?' "'It was Frank's turn to look amazed and bewildered.' "'Clothes?' he repeated. "'What are you driving at, my dear chap?' "'What suit were you wearing today?' persisted Saul Arthur Mann. Frank disappeared into his dressing-room and came out with a tumbled bundle which he dropped on a chair. It was the blue suit which he usually affected. "'Now, what is the joke?' "'It is no joke,' said the other. "'I could have sworn that I saw you less than half an hour ago in Camden Town.' "'I won't pretend that I don't know where Camden Town is,' smiled Frank, "'but I have not visited that interesting locality for many years.' salt so luther man was silent. It was obvious to him that whoever was the occupant of 69 Flowerton Road, it was not Frank Merrill. Frank listened to the narrative with interest. "'You are probably mistaken.' "'The light played you a trick, I expect,' he said. "'But Mr. Mann was emphatic. "'I could have taken an oath in a court that it was you,' he said. "'Frank stared out of the window. "'How very curious,' he mused. "'I suppose I cannot very well prosecute a man for looking like me. "'Poor girl!' "'Of whom are you thinking?' asked the other. "'I was thinking of the unfortunate woman,' answered Frank. "'What brutes there are in the world!' You gave me a terrible fright," admitted his friend. Frank's laugh was loud and hearty. I suppose you saw me figuring in a court charged with common assault, he said. I saw more than that," said the other gravely, and I see more than that now. Suppose you have a double, and suppose that double is working in collusion with your enemies. Frank shook his head wearily. My dear friend, he said with a little smile, I am tired of supposing things. Come and dine with me. But Mr. Mann had another engagement. Moreover, he wanted to think things out. Thinking things out was a process which brought little reward in this instance, and he went to bed that night a vexed and puzzled man. He always had his breakfast in bed at ten o'clock in the morning, for he had reached the age of habits and had fixed ten o'clock, since it gave his clerks time to bring down his personal mail from the office to his private residence. It was a profitable mail. It was an exciting mail, and it contained an element of rich promise, for it included a letter from Constable Wiseman. Dear sir, re our previous conversation, I have just come across one of the photographs of the young lady, Sergeant Smith's daughter. It was given to the private detective who was searching for her. It was given to my wife by her cousin, and I send it to you hoping it may be of some use. Yours respectfully, Peter John Wiseman The photograph was wrapped in a piece of tissue paper, and Saul Arthur Mann opened it eagerly. He looked at the oblong card and gasped, for the girl who was depicted there was the girl he had seen on the steps of 69 Flowerton Road. A telephone message prepared Frank for the news, and an hour later the two men were together in the office of the bureau. "'I am going along to that house to see the girl,' said Saul Arthur Mann. "'Will you come?' "'With all the pleasure in life,' said Frank. Curiously enough, I am as eager to find her as you. I remember her very well, and one of the quarrels I had with my uncle was due to her. She had come up to the house on behalf of her father, and I thought uncle treated her rather brutally. Point number 1 cleared up, thought Saul man Then she disappeared, Frank went on, and Jasper came on the scene. There was some association between this girl and Jasper, which I have never been able to fathom. All I know is that he took a tremendous interest in her and tried to find her, and so far as I remember he never succeeded. Mr. Mann's car was at the door, and in a few minutes they were deposited before the prim exterior of number 69. The door was opened by a girl-servant, who stared from Saul Arthur Mann to his companion. "'There is a lady living here,' said Mr. Mann. He produced the photograph. "'This is the lady?' The girl nodded, still staring at Frank. "'I want to see her.' "'She's gone,' said the girl. "'You are looking at me very intently,' said Frank. "'Have you ever seen me before?' "'Yes, sir,' said the girl. "'You used to come here, or a gentleman very much like you. You are Mr. Merrill.' "'That is my name,' smiled Frank, but I do not think I have ever been here before.' "'Where has the lady gone?' asked Saul Arthur. She went last night, took all their boxes, and went off in a cab. Is anybody living in the house?" No, sir," said the girl. How long have you been in service here?" About a week, sir," replied the girl. We are friends of hers," said Saul Arthur, shamelessly, and we have been asked to call to see if everything is all right. The girl hesitated, but Saul Arthur, men with that air of authority which he so readily assumed swept past her and began an inspection of the house. It was plainly furnished, but the furniture was good. Apparently the spurious Mr. Merrill had plenty of money, said Sol Arthur Mann. There were no photographs or papers visible until they came to the bedroom, where, in the grate, was a torn sheet of paper bearing a few lines of fine writing, which Mr. Mann immediately annexed. Before they left, Frank again asked the girl, "'Was the gentleman who lived here really like me?' "'Yes, sir,' said the little slavey. "'Have a good look at me,' said Frank humorously, and the girl stared again. "'Something like you,' she admitted. "'Did he talk like me?' "'I never heard him talk, sir,' said the girl. "'Tell me,' said Salt-Luther Man, "'was he kind to his wife?' A faint grin appeared on the face of the little servant. "'They were always rowing,' she admitted. "'A bullying fellow he was, and she was frightened of him.' are you the police she asked with sudden interest frank shook his head no we are not the police he gave the girl half a crown and walked down the steps ahead of his companion it is rather awkward if i have a double who bullies his wife and lives in camden town he said as the car hummed back to the city office saw Arthur man was silent during the journey and only answered in monosyllables again in the privacy of his office he took the torn letter and carefully pieced it together on his desk. It bore no address, and there were no affectionate preliminaries. "'You must get out of London. Saul Arthur men saw you both today. Go to the old place and await instructions.' There was no signature, but across the table the two men looked at one another, for the writing was the writing of Jasper Cole. End of Chapter 15 Chapter 16 of The Man Who Knew by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Coming of Sergeant Smith. Jasper Cole at that moment was trudging through the snow to the little chalet which May Nuttle had taken on the slope of the mountain overlooking Chamonix. The sleigh which had brought him up from the station was at the foot of the rise. May saw him from the veranda and coo ooed a welcome. He stamped the snow from his boots and ran up the steps of the veranda to meet her. "'This is a very pleasant surprise,' she said, giving him both their hands and looking at him approvingly. He had lost much of his pallor, and his face was tanned and healthy, though a little fine-drawn. "'It was rather a mad thing to do, wasn't it?' he confessed ruefully. "'You are such a confirmed bachelor, Jasper, that I believe you hate doing anything outside your regular routine.' Why did you come all the way from Holland to the Haute-Savoie? He had followed her into the warm and cozy sitting-room and was warming his chilled fingers by the big log fire which burned on the hearth. Can you ask? I came to see you. And how are all the experiments going? She turned him to another topic in some hurry. There have been no experiments since last month, at least not the kind of experiments you mean. The one in which I have been engaged has been very successful. And what was that? she asked curiously. I will tell you one of these days, he said. He was staying at the Hotel des Alpes, and hoped to be a week in Chamonix. They chatted about the weather, the early snow which had covered the valley in a mantle of white, about the tantalizing behavior of Mont Blanc, which had not been visible since May had arrived, of the early avalanches. Which awakened her with their thunder on the night of her arrival, of the pleasant road to Argentière, of the villages by the Col de Baume, which are buried in snow, of the sparkling ethereal green of the great glacier, of everything save that which was nearest to their thoughts and to their hearts. Jasper broke the ice when he referred to Frank's visit to Geneva. How did you know? She asked suddenly, grave. Somebody told me, he said casually. "'Jasper, were you ever at Montreux?' she asked, looking him straight in the eye. "'I have been to Montreux, or rather to Cox,' he said. "'That is the village on the mountain above, and one has to go through Montreux to reach it. Why do you ask?' A sudden chill had fallen upon her, which she did not shake off that day or the next. They made the usual excursions together, climbed up the wooden slopes of the butt, and on the third morning of his arrival stood together in the clear dawn and watched the first pink rays of the sun striking the humped summit of Mont Blanc. "'Isn't it glorious?' she whispered. He nodded. The serene beauty of it all, the purity, the majestic aloofness of the mountains at once depressed and exalted her, brought her nearer to the sublimity of ancient truths, cleansed her of petty fears. She turned to him unexpectedly and asked— Jasper, who killed John Minnet? He made no reply. His wistful eyes were fixed hungrily upon the glories of light and shade, of space, of inaccessibility, of purity, of colouring, of all that dawn upon which Mont Blanc comprehended. When he spoke, his voice was lowered to almost a whisper. I know that the man who killed John Minnet is alive and free, he said. Who was he? If you do not know now, you may never know," he said. There was a silence which lasted for fully five minutes, and the crimson light upon the mountain-top had paled to lemon-yellow. Then she asked again, Are you directly or indirectly guilty? He shook his head. Neither directly nor indirectly, he said shortly, and the next minute she was in his arms. There had been no word of love between them, no tender passage, no letter which the world could not read it was a love-making which had begun where other love-makings end in conquest and in surrender in this strange way beyond all understanding may nuttle became engaged and announced the fact in the briefest of letters to her friends a fortnight later the girl arrived in england and was met at charing cross by Sol arthur mann she was radiantly happy and bubbling over with good spirits a picture of health and beauty All this Mr. Mann observed with a sinking heart. He had a duty to perform, and that duty was not a pleasant one. He knew it was useless to reason with the girl. He could offer her no more than half-formed theories and suspicions, but at least he had one trump card. He debated in his mind whether he should play this, for here, too, his information was of the scantiest description. He carried his account of the girl to Frank Merrill. My dear Frank, she is simply infatuated, said the little man in despair. Oh, if that infernal record of mine was only completed, I could convince her in a second. There is no single investigation I have ever undertaken which has been so disappointing. Can nothing be done? asked Frank. I cannot believe that it will happen. Mary Jasper, Great Caesar! After all— His voice was hoarse. The hand he raised in protest shook. Saul Arthur Mann scratched his chin reflectively. "'Suppose you saw her,' he suggested and added a little grimly, "'I will see Mr. Cole at the same time.' Frank hesitated. "'I can understand your reluctance,' the little man went on, "'but there is too much at stake to allow your finer feelings to stop you. "'This matter has got to be prevented at all costs. "'We are fighting for time. "'In a month, possibly less, we may have the whole of the facts in our hands.' "'Have you found out anything about the girl in Camden Town?' asked Frank. "'She has disappeared completely,' replied the other. "'Every clue we have had is led nowhere.' Frank dressed himself with unusual care that afternoon, and having previously telephoned and secured the girl's permission to call, he presented himself to the minute. She was, as usual, cordiality itself. "'I was rather hurt at your not calling before, Frank,' she said. You have come to congratulate me?" She looked at him straight in the eyes as she said this. "'You can hardly expect that, May,' he said gently, knowing how much you are to me and how greatly I wanted you. Honestly, I cannot understand it, and I can only suppose that you, whom I love better than anything in the world, and you mean more to me than any other being, share the suspicion which surrounds me like a poisoned cloud.' "'Yet if I shared that suspicion,' she said calmly, Would I let you see me? No, Frank, I was a child when, you know. It was only a few months ago, but I believe, indeed I know, that it would have been the greatest mistake I could possibly have made. I should have been a very unhappy woman, for I have loved Jasper all along. She said this evenly, without any display of emotion or embarrassment. Frank, narrating the interview to Saul Arthur Mann, described the speech as almost mechanical. I hope you are going to take it nicely, she went on, that we are going to be such good friends as we always were, and that even the memory of your poor uncle's death, and the ghastly trial which followed, and the part that Jasper played, will not spoil our friendship. But don't you see what it means to me, he burst forth. And for a second they looked at one another, and Frank divined her thoughts and winced. I know what you are thinking, he said huskily. You are thinking of all the beastly things that were said at the trial that if I had gained you I should have gained all that I tried to gain." She went red. It was horrid of me, wasn't it, she confessed, and yet that idea came to me. One cannot control one's thoughts, Frank, and you must be content to know that I believe in your innocence. There are some thoughts which flourish in one's mind like weeds, and which refuse to be uprooted. Don't blame me if I recall the lawyer's words. It was an involuntary, hateful thought. He inclined his head. There is another thought which is not involuntary, she went on, and it is because I want to retain our friendship and I want everything to go on as usual that I am asking you one question. Your twenty fourth birthday has come and gone. You told me that your uncle's design was to keep you unmarried until that day. You are still unmarried, and your twenty fourth birthday has passed. What has happened? Many things have happened, he replied quietly. My uncle is dead. I am a rich man apart from the accident of his legacy. I could meet you on level terms. I knew nothing of this, she said quickly. He shrugged his shoulders. Didn't Jasper tell you? he asked. No, Jasper told me nothing. Frank drew a long breath. Then I can only say that until the mystery of my uncle's death is solved, you cannot know, he said. I can only repeat what I have already told you. She offered her hand. I believe you, Frank, she said, and I was wrong even to doubt you in the smallest degree. He took her hand and held it. May, he said, what is this strange fascination that Jasper has over you? For the second time in that interview, she flushed and pulled her hand back. There was nothing unusual in the fascination which Jasper exercised as she smiled, quickly recovering, almost against her will, from the little twinge of anger she felt. It is the influence which every woman has felt and which you one day will feel. He laughed bitterly. Then nothing will make you change your mind, he said. Nothing in the world, she answered emphatically. For a moment she was sorry for him, as he stood, both hands resting on a chair, his eyes on the ground, a picture of despair, and she crossed to him and slipped her arm through his. Don't take it so badly, Frank, she said softly. I am a capricious foolish girl i know and i am really not worth a moment's suffering he shook himself together gathered up his hat his stick and his overcoat and offered his hand good-bye he said and good luck in the meantime another interview of a widely different character was taking place in the little house which jasper cole occupied on the portsmouth road jasper and saul arthur mann had met before but this was the first visit that the investigator had paid to the home of John Minnett's heir. Jasper was waiting at the door to greet the little man when he arrived, and had offered him a quiet but warm welcome, and led the way to the beautiful study which was half-laboratory, which he had built for himself since John Minnett's death. "'I am coming straight to the point without any beating about the bush,' Mr. Cole said the little man, depositing his bag on the side of his chair and opening it with a jerk." I will tell you frankly that I am acting on Mr. Merrill's behalf, and that I am also acting, as I believe, in the interests of justice. Your motives, at any rate, are admirable, said Jasper, pushing back the papers which littered his big library table and seated himself on the edge. You are probably aware that you are to some extent under suspicion, Mr. Cole. Under your suspicion, or the suspicion of the authorities, asked the other coolly. Under mine, said Saul Arthur Mann emphatically. I cannot speak for the authorities. In what direction does this suspicion run? He thrust his hands deep in his trousers pockets and eyed the other keenly. My first suspicion is that you are well aware as to who murdered John Minnett. Jasper Cole nodded. I am perfectly aware that he was murdered by your friend, Mr. Merrill, he said. I suggest, said Saul Arthur Mann calmly, that you know the murderer, and you know the murderer was not Frank Merrill. Jasper made no reply, and a faint smile flickered for a second at the corner of his mouth, but he gave no other sign of his inward feelings. "'And the other point you wish to raise?' he asked. "'The other is a more delicate subject, since it involves a lady,' said the little man. "'You are about to be married to Miss Nuttall.' Jasper Cole nodded. "'You have obtained an extraordinary influence over the lady in this past few months.' "'I hope so,' said the other cheerfully. "'It is an influence which might have been brought about by normal methods, but it is also one,' Saul Arthur leaned over and tapped the table emphatically with each word, "'which might be secured by a very clever chemist who had found a way of sapping the will of his victim.' "'By the administration of drugs?' asked Jasper by the administration of drugs," repeated Sol Arthur Mann. Jasper Cole smiled. "'I should like to know the drug,' he said. One would make a fortune to say nothing of benefiting humanity to an extraordinary degree by its employment. For example, I might give you a dose and you would tell me all that you know. I am told that your knowledge is fairly extensive,' he bantered. "'Surely you, Mr. Mann, with your remarkable collection of information on all subjects under the sun, do not suggest that such a drug exists. On the contrary, said the man who knew, in triumph, it is known and is employed. It was known as long ago as the days of the Borgias. It was employed in France in the days of Louis the Sixteenth. It has been, to some extent, rediscovered and used in lunatic asylums to quiet dangerous patients. He saw the interest deepen in the other's eyes. I have never heard of that, said Jasper slowly. The only drug that is employed for that purpose is, as far as I know, bromide of potassium." Mr. Mann produced a slip of paper and read off a list of names, mostly of mental institutions in the United States of America and in Germany. "'Oh, that drug!' said Jasper Cole contemptuously. I know the use to which that is put. There was an article on the subject in the British Medical Journal three months ago. It is a modified kind of twilight sleep highest seen in Morphia. I'm afraid, Mr. Mann, you went on, you have come on a fruitless errand, and speaking as a humble student of science, I may suggest without offence that your theories are wholly fantastic. Then I will put another suggestion to you, Mr. Cole, said the little man without resentment, and to me this constitutes the chief reason why you should not marry the lady whose confidence I enjoy and who, I feel sure, will be influenced by my advice. And what is that? asked jasper it affects your own character and it is in consequence a very embarrassing matter for me to discuss said the little man again the other favored him with that inscrutable smile of his my moral character i presume is now being assailed he said flippantly please go on you promised to be interesting you were in holland a short time ago does miss not know this jasper nodded she is well aware of the fact You were in Holland with a lady, accused Mr. Mann slowly. Is Miss Nuttall well aware of this fact, too? Jasper slipped from the table and stood upright. Through his narrow lids he looked down upon his accuser. Is that all you know? he asked softly. Not all, but one of the things I know, retorted the other. You were seen in her company. She was staying in the same hotel with you as Mrs. Cole. Jasper nodded. You will excuse me if I decline to discuss the matter," he said. Suppose I ask Miss Nuttall to discuss it, challenged the little man. You are a master of your own actions, said Jasper Cole quickly, and I dare say, if you regard it as expedient, you will tell her, but I can promise you that, whether you tell her or not, I shall marry Miss Nuttall. With this he ushered his visitor to the door, and hardly waited for the car to drive off before he had shut that door behind him. Late that night, the two friends foregathered and exchanged their experiences. I am sure there is something very wrong, indeed," said Frank emphatically. She was not herself; she spoke mechanically, almost as though she were reciting a lesson. You had the feeling that she was connected by wires with somebody who was dictating her every word and action. It is damnable, man. What can we do? We must prevent the marriage," said the little man quietly and employ every means that opportunity suggests to that purpose. Make no mistake," he said emphatically, Cole will stop at nothing. His attitude was one big bluff. He knows that I have beaten him. It was only by luck that I found out about the woman in Holland. I got my agent to examine the hotel register and there it was, without any attempt at disguise, Mr. and Mrs. Cole of London. The thing to do was to see May at once, said Frank, and put all the facts before her though I hate the idea, it seems like sneaking." "'Sneaking!' exploded Saul Arthur Mann. What nonsense you talk! You are too full of scruples, my friend, for this work. I will see her to "'I will go with you,' said Frank, after a moment's thought. I have no wish to escape my responsibility in the matter. She will probably hate me for my interference, but I have reached beyond the point where I care so long as she can be saved." It was agreed that they should meet one another at the office in the morning and make their way together. Remember this, said Mann seriously, before they parted, that if Cole finds the game is up he will stop at nothing. Do you think we ought to take precautions? asked Frank. Honestly, I do, confessed the other. I don't think we can get the men from the yard, but there is a very excellent agency which sometimes works for me, and they can provide a guard for the girl. I wish you would get in touch with them, said Frank earnestly. I am worried sick over this business. She ought never to be left out of their sight. I will see if I can have a talk to her maid so that we may know whenever she is going out. There ought to be a man on a motorcycle always waiting about the Savoy to follow her wherever she goes. They parted at the entrance of the Bureau, saw Arthur Mann returning to telephone the necessary instructions. How necessary they were was proved that very night. At nine o'clock, May was sitting down to a solitary dinner when a telegram was delivered to her. It was from the chief of the little mission in which she had been interested, and ran, Very urgent. Have something of the greatest importance to tell you. It was signed with the name of the matron of the mission, and leaving her dinner untouched, May only delayed long enough to change her dress before she was speeding in a taxi eastward. She arrived at the hall, which was the headquarters of the mission, to find it in darkness, A man who was evidently a new helper was waiting in the doorway and addressed her. "'You are Miss Nuttall, aren't you?' "'I thought so. The matron has gone down to Silver's rents, and she has asked me to go along with you.' The girl dismissed the taxi, and in company with her guide threaded the narrow tangle of streets between the mission and Silver's rents. She was halfway along one of the ill-lighted thoroughfares when she noticed that drawn up by the side of the road was a big, handsome motor-car and she wondered what had brought this evidence of luxurious living to the mean streets of canningtown she was not left in doubt very long for as she came up to the lights and was shielding her eyes from their glare her arms were tightly grasped a shawl was thrown over her head and she was lifted and thrust into the car's interior a hand gripped her throat you scream and i will kill you hissed a voice in her ear at that moment the car started and the girl with a scream which was strangled in her throat fell swooning back on the seat. May recovered consciousness to find the car still rushing forward in the dark, and the hand of her captor still resting at her throat. "'You be a sensible girl,' said a muffled voice, "'and do as you're told and no harm will come to you.' It was too dark to see his face, and it was evident that even if there were light the face was so well concealed that she could not recognize the speaker. Then she remembered that this man, who had acted as her guide, had been careful to keep in the shadow of whatever light there was while he was conducting her, as he said, to the matron. "'Where are you taking me?' she asked. "'You'll know in time,' was the noncommittal answer. It was a wild night. Rain splashed against the windows of the car, and she could hear the wind howling above the noise of the engines. They were evidently going into the country, for now and again, by the light of the headlamps, she glimpsed hedges and trees which flashed past. Her captor suddenly let down one of the windows and leaned out, giving some instructions to the driver. What they were, she guessed, for the lights were suddenly switched off and the car ran in darkness. The girl was in a panic for all her bold showing. She knew that this desperate man was fearless of consequence, and that, if her death would achieve his ends and the ends of his partners, her life was in imminent peril. What were those ends, she wondered. Were these the same men who had done to death John Minnet? Who are you? she asked. There was a little chuckling laugh. You'll know soon enough. The words were hardly out of his mouth when there was a terrific crash. The car stopped suddenly and canted over, and the girl was jerked forward to her knees. Every pane of glass in the car was smashed, and it was clear from the angle at which it lay that irremediable damage had been done. The man scrambled up. KICKED open THE DOOR AND JUMPED OUT. LEVEL CROSSING GATE, SIR, SAID THE VOICE OF THE CHAUFFEUR. I'VE BROKEN MY WRIST. WITH THE DISAPPEARANCE OF HER CAPTOR THE GIRL HAD FELT FOR THE FASTENING OF THE OPPOSITE DOOR AND HAD TURNED IT. TO HER DELIGHT IT OPENED SMOOTHLY AND HAD EVIDENTLY BEEN UNAFFECTED BY THE JAM. SHE STEPPED OUT TO THE ROAD TREMBLING IN EVERY LIMB. SHE FELT RATHER THAN SAW THE LEVEL CROSSING GATE AND KNEW THAT AT ONE SIDE WAS A SWING GATE FOR PASSENGERS. She reached this when her reductor discovered her flight. "'Come back!' he cried hoarsely. She heard a roar and saw a flashing of lights and fled across the line just as an express train came flying northward. It missed her by inches, and the force of the wind threw her to the ground. She scrambled up, stumbled across the remaining rails and, reaching the gate opposite, fled down the dark road. She had gained just that much time which the train took in passing. She ran blindly along the dark road, slipping and stumbling in the mud, and she heard her pursuer squelching through the mud in the rear. The wind flew her hair awry. The rain beat down upon her face, but she stumbled on. Suddenly she slipped and fell, and as she struggled to her feet the heavy hand of her pursuer fell upon her shoulder, and she screamed aloud. "'None of that,' said the voice, and his hand covered her mouth. At that moment a bright light enveloped the two, a light so intensely, dazzlingly white, so unexpected, that it hit the girl almost like a blow. It came from somewhere, not two yards away, and the man released his hold upon the girl and stared at the light. "Hello," said a voice from the darkness. "'What's the game?' She was behind the man and could not see his face. All that she knew was that here was help, unexpected, heaven-sent and she strove to recover her breath in her speech. "'It's all right,' growled the man. "'She's a lunatic, and I'm taking her to the asylum.' Suddenly the light was pushed forward to the man's face, and a heavy hand was laid upon his shoulder. "'You are, are you?' said the other. "'Well, I'm going to take you to a lunatic asylum, Sergeant Smith, or Crawley, or whatever your name is. You know me. My name's Wiseman.' For a moment the man stood as though petrified, and then, with a sudden jerk, he wrenched his hand free and sprang at the policeman with a wild yell of rage, and in a second both men were rolling over in the darkness. Constable Wiseman was no child, but he had lost his initial advantage, and by the time he got to his feet and had found his electric torch, Crawley had vanished. End of Chapter Sixteen. Chapter Seventeen of The Man Who Knew by edgar wallace this librivox recording is in the public domain the man called merrill if wise men did not think you were a murderer i should regard him as an intelligent being said Sol arthur Mann. have they found crawley asked frank no he got away the chauffeur and the car were hired from a west end garage with this story of a lunatic who had to be removed to an asylum and apparently Crawley, or Smith, was the man who hired them. He even paid a little extra for the damage which the alleged lunatic might do the car. The chauffeur says that he had some doubt, and had intended to inform the police after he had arrived at his destination. As a matter of fact, they were just outside Eastbourne when the accident occurred. The man who knew paused. Where did he say he was taking her? he asked Frank. He was told to drive into Eastbourne, where more detailed instructions would be given to him. The police have confirmed this story, and he has been released. I have just come from May, said Frank. She looks none the worse for her exciting adventure. I hope you have arranged to have her guarded?" Saul Arthur Mann nodded. It will be the last adventure of that kind our friend will attempt, he said. Still this enlightens us a little. We know that Mr. X. Holland has an accomplice and that accomplice is Sergeant Smith, so we may presume that they were both in the murder. Constable Wiseman has been suitably rewarded, as he well deserves,' said Frank heartily. "'You bear no malice,' smiled Saul Arthur Mann. Frank laughed and shook his head. "'How can one?' he asked simply. May had another visitor. Jasper Cole came hurriedly to London at the first intimation of the outrage, but was reassured by the girl's appearance. It was awfully thrilling, she said, but really I am not greatly distressed. In fact, I think I look less tired than you. He nodded. That is very possible. I did not go to bed until very late this morning, he said. I was so engrossed in my research work that I did not realize it was morning until they brought me my tea. You haven't been in bed all night, she said, shocked, and shook her head reprovingly. That is one of your habits of life which will have to be changed. She warned him. Jasper Cole did not dismiss her unpleasant experience as lightly as she. "'I wonder what the object of it all was,' he said, "'and why they took you back to Eastbourne. "'I think we shall find that the headquarters of this infernal combination "'is somewhere in Sussex. "'Mr. Mann doesn't think so,' she said, "'but believes that the car was to be met by another at Eastbourne "'and I was to be transferred. "'He says that the idea of taking me there was to throw the police off the scent.' She shivered. It wasn't a nice experience, she confessed. The interview took place in the afternoon, and was some two hours after Frank had interviewed the girl. Saul, like man, had gone to Eastbourne to bring her back. Jasper had arranged to spend the night in town, and had booked two stalls at the Hippodrome. She had told Saul, Arthur man, this in accordance with her promise to keep him informed as to her movements, and she was therefore surprised when, half an hour later, the little investigator presented himself. She met him in the presence of her fiancé, and it was clear to Jasper what sol Arthur Mann's intentions were. "'I don't want to make myself a nuisance,' he said. "'But before we go any further, Miss Nuttall, there are certain matters on which you ought to be informed. I have every reason to believe that I know who was responsible for the outrage of last night, and I do not intend risking a repetition.' "'Who do you think was responsible?' asked the girl quietly. "'I honestly believe that the author is in this room,' was a startling response. "'You mean me?' asked Jasper Cole angrily. "'I mean you, Mr. Cole. I believe that you are the man who planned the coup and that you are its sole author,' said the other. The girl stared at him in astonishment. "'You surely do not mean what you say.' "'I mean that Mr. Cole has every reason for wishing to marry you,' he said." What that reason is, I do not know completely, but I shall discover. I am satisfied, he went on slowly, that Mr. Cole is already married. She looked from one to the other. Already married? repeated Jasper. If he is not already married, said Saul Arthur Mann bluntly, then I have been indiscreet. The only thing I can tell you is that your fiance has been traveling on the continent with a lady who describes herself as Mrs. Cole. Jasper said nothing for a moment, but looked at the other oddly and thoughtfully. "'I understand, Mr. Mann,' he said at length, "'that you collect facts as other people collect postage stamps.' salt so Arthur Mann bristled. "'You may carry this off, sir,' he began. "'If you can—' "'Let me speak,' said Jasper Cole, raising his voice. "'I want to ask you this. "'Have you a complete record of John Minnit's life?' I know it so well, said Saul Arthur Mann emphatically, that I could repeat his history word for word. Will you sit down, May? said Jasper, taking the girl's hand in his and gently forcing her to a chair. We are going to put Mr. Mann's memory to the test. Do you seriously mean that you want me to repeat that history? asked the other suspiciously. I mean just that, said Jasper, and drew up a chair for his unpleasant visitor. The record of John Minnett's life came trippingly from man's tongue. He knew to an extraordinary extent the details of that strange and wild career. In 1892, said the investigator, continuing his narrative, he was married at St. Bride's Church, Port Elizabeth, to Agnes Gertrude Cole. Cole, murmured Jasper. The little man looked at him with open mouth. Cole! Good Lord! You are... I am his son," said Jasper quietly. "'I am one of his two children. Your information is that there was one. As a matter of fact, there were two. My mother left my father with one of the greatest scoundrels that has ever lived. He took her to Australia, where my sister was born six months after she had left John Minnet. There her friend deserted her, and she worked for seven years as a kitchen-maid, in Melbourne, in order to save up enough money to bring us to Cape Town. My mother opened a tea shop off Adderley Street and earned enough to educate me and my sister. It was there she met Crawley and Crawley promised to use his influence with my father to bring about a reconciliation for her children's sake. I do not know what was the result of his attempt but I gather it was unsuccessful and things went on very much as they were before. Then one day, when I was still at the South African College my mother went home, taking my sister with her. I have reason to believe that Crawley was responsible for her sailing and that he met them on landing. All that I knew was that from that day my mother disappeared. She had left me a sum of money to continue my studies, but after eight months had passed and no word had come from her, I decided to go on to England. I have since learned what had happened. My mother had been seized with a stroke and had been conveyed to the workhouse infirmary by Crawley, who had left her there and had taken my sister who apparently he passed off as his own daughter. I did not know this at the time, but being well aware of my father's identity I wrote to him, asking him for help to discover my mother. He answered, telling me that my mother was dead, that Crawley had told him so, and that there was no trace of Marguerite, my sister. We exchanged a good many letters, and then my father asked me to come and act as the secretary and assist him in his search for Marguerite. What he did not know was that Crawley's alleged daughter, whom he had not seen, was the girl for whom he was seeking. I fell into the new life, and found John Minnett—I can scarcely call him father—much more bearable than I expected, and then one day I found my mother. "'You found your mother?' said Saul Arthur Mann, a light dawning upon him. "'Your persistent search of the little house in Silver's rents produced nothing,' he smiled. Had you taken the bamboo ladder and crossed the yard at the back of the house into another yard, then through the door, you would have come to number 16, Royston Court, and you would have been considerably surprised to find an interior much more luxurious than you would have expected in that quarter. In Royston Court they spoke of number 16 as the house with the nurses, because there were always three nurses on duty, and nobody ever saw the inside of the house but themselves. There you would have found my mother, bedridden, and indeed so ill that the doctors who saw her would not allow her to be moved from the house. I furnished this hovel piece by piece, generally at night, because I did not want to excite the curiosity of the people in the court, nor did I wish this matter to reach the ears of John Minnet. I felt that while I retained his friendship and his confidence, there was at least a chance of his reconciliation with my mother and that, before all things, she desired. It was not to be, he said sadly. John Minnett was struck down at the moment my plans seemed as though they were going to result in complete success. Strangely enough, with his death, my mother made an extraordinary recovery, and I was able to move her to the continent. She had always wanted to see Holland, France, and at this moment, he turned to the girl with a smile, she is in the chalet which you occupy during your holiday mr mann was dumbfounded all his pet theories had gone by the board but what of your sister he asked at last a black look gathered in jasper cole's face my sister's whereabouts are known to me now he said shortly for some time she lived in camden town at number sixty nine flowerton road at the present moment she is nearer and is watched night and day almost as carefully as mr mann's agents are watching you he smiled again at the girl watching me she said startled saw the man went red it was my idea he said stiffly and a very excellent one agreed jasper but unfortunately you appointed your guards too late mr Mann went back to his office his brain in a whirl yet such was his habit that he did not allow himself to speculate upon the new and amazing situation, until he had carefully jotted down every new fact he had collected. It was astounding that he had overlooked the connection between Jasper Cole and John Minnett's wife. His labours did not cease until eleven o'clock, and he was preparing to go home when the commissionaire who acted as caretaker came to tell him that a lady wished to see him. "'A lady, at this hour of the night?' said Mr. Mann, perturbed. t'other to come in the morning.' i have told her that sir but she insists upon seeing you tonight. What is her name mrs merrill said the commissionaire saw like the man collapsed into his chair show her up he said feebly he had no difficulty in recognizing the girl who came timidly into the room as the original of the photograph which had been sent to him by constable wiseman she was plainly dressed and wore no ornament and she was undeniably pretty. But there was about her a furtiveness and a nervous indecision which spoke of her apprehension. "'Sit down,' said Mr. Mann kindly. "'What do you want me to do for you?' "'I am Mrs. Merrill,' she said timidly. So the Commissioner said, replied the little man, "'You are nervous about something?' "'Oh, I am so frightened,' said the girl, with a shudder. "'If he knows I have been here, he'll—' "'You have nothing to be frightened about.' Just sit here for one moment. He went into the next room, which had a branch telephone connection, and called up May. She was out, and he left an urgent message that she was to come, bringing Jasper with her as soon as she returned. When he got back to his office, he found the girl as he had left her, sitting on the edge of a big armchair, plucking nervously at her handkerchief. I have heard about you, she said. He mentioned you once, before we went to that Sussex cottage with Mr. Crawley. They were going to bring another lady, and I was to look after her. But he— Who is he? asked Mr. Mann. My husband, said the girl. How long have you been married? demanded the little man. I ran away with him a long time ago, she said. It has been an awful life. It was Mr. Crawley's idea. He told me that if I married Mr. Merrill, he would take me to see my mother and Jasper. But he was so cruel, she shuddered again. We've been living in furnished houses all over the country, and I have been alone most of the time, and he would not let me go out by myself or do anything. She spoke in a subdued, monotonous tone that betrayed the nearness of a bad, nervous breakdown. What does your husband call himself? Why, Frank Merrill, said the girl in astonishment, that's his name. Mr. Crawley always told me his name was Merrill, isn't it? Mr. Mann shook his head. My poor girl, he said sympathetically, I am afraid you have been grossly deceived. The man you married as Merrill is an impostor. An impostor?" she faltered. Mr. Mann nodded. He has taken a good man's name, and I am afraid has committed abominable crimes in that man's name, said the investigator gently. I hope we shall be able to rid you and the world of a great villain. Still she stared uncomprehendingly. "'He has always been a liar,' she said slowly. "'He lied naturally and acted things so well that you believed him. "'He told me things which I know aren't true. "'He told me my brother was dead, "'but I saw his name in the paper the other day, "'and that is why it came to you. "'Do you know Jasper?' "'She was as naive and unsophisticated as a schoolgirl, "'and it made the little man's heart ache "'to hear the plaintive monotony of tone "'and see the trembling lip.' I promise you that you will meet your brother," he said. "'I have run away from Frank,' she said suddenly. "'Isn't that a wicked thing to do? I could not stand it. He struck me again yesterday, and he pretends to be a gentleman. My mother used to say that no gentleman ever treats a woman badly, but Frank does.' "'Nobody shall treat you badly any more,' said Mr. Mann. "'I hate him,' she went on with sudden vehemence. "'He sneers and says he's going to get another wife and—' oh." He saw her hands go up to her face and saw her staring eyes turn to the door in affright. fright. Frank Merrill stood in the doorway and looked at her without recognition. ''I am sorry,'' he said, ''you have a visitor?'' ''Come in,'' said Mr. Mann, ''I'm awfully glad you called.'' The girl had risen to her feet and was shrinking back to the wall. ''Do you know this lady?'' Frank looked at her keenly. ''Why, yes, that's Sergeant Smith's daughter,'' he said, and he smiled. Where on earth have you been? Don't touch me, she breathed, and put her hands before her, warding him off. He looked at her in astonishment, and from her to man. Then he looked back at the girl, his brow wrinkled in perplexity. This girl, said Mr. Man, thinks she is your wife. My wife? said Frank, and looked again at her. Is this a bad joke or something? Do you say that I am your husband? he asked. She did not speak, but nodded slowly. He sat down in a chair and whistled. This rather complicates matters, he said blankly, but perhaps you can explain? I only know what the girl has told me, said Mr. Mann, shaking his head. I am afraid there is a terrible mistake here. Frank turned to the girl. But did your husband look like me? She nodded. And did he call himself Frank Merrill? Again she nodded. Where is he now? She nodded, this time at him. But great heavens, said Frank, with a gesture of despair, you do not suggest that I am the man. You're the man, said the girl. Again Frank looked appealingly at his friend, and saw that like their man saw dismay and laughter in his eyes. I don't know what I can do, he said. Perhaps if you left me alone with her for a minute. Don't, don't she breathed. Don't leave me alone with him. Stay here. "'And where have you come from now?' asked Frank. "'From the house where you took me. "'You struck me yesterday,' she went on inconsequently. "'Frank laughed. "'I am not only married, but I am a wife-beater, apparently,' he said desperately. "'Now what can I do? "'I think the best thing that can be done is for this lady to tell us where she lives, "'and I will take her back and confront her husband.' "'I won't go with you,' cried the girl. "'I won't! I won't!' "'You said you'd look after me, Mr. Mann. "'You promised!' The little investigator saw that she was distraught to a point where a collapse was imminent. "'This gentleman will look after you also,' he said encouragingly. "'He is as anxious to save you from your husband as anybody.' "'I will not go,' she cried. "'If that man touches me,' and she pointed to Frank, "'I'll scream!' Again came the tap at the door, and Frank looked round. "'More visitors?' he asked. "'It is all right,' said salt Man. "'There's a lady and a gentleman to see me, isn't there?' he asked the commissionaire. "'Show them in.' May came first, saw the little tableau, and stopped, knowing instinctively all that it portended. Jasper followed her. The girl who had been watching Frank shifted her eyes for a moment to the visitor's, and at sight of Jasper flung across the room. In an instant her brother's arms were around her, and she was sobbing on his breast. Am I entitled to ask what all this means?" asked Frank quietly. I am sure you will overlook my natural irritation, but I have suffered so much and I have been the victim of so many surprises that I do not feel inclined to accept all the shocks which fate sends me in a spirit of joyful resignation. Perhaps you will be good enough to elucidate this new mystery. Is everybody mad, or am I the sole sufferer?" "'There is no mystery about it,' said Jasper, still holding the girl. I think you know this lady?" "'I have never met her before in my life,' said Frank. "'But she persists in regarding me as her husband for some reason. Is this a new scheme of yours, Jasper?' "'I think you know this lady,' said Jasper Cole again. Frank shrugged his shoulders. "'You are almost monotonous. I repeat that I have never seen her before.' "'Then I will explain to you,' said Jasper. He put the girl gently from him for a moment, and turned and whispered something to May. Together they passed out of the room. "'You were a confidential secretary to John Minnet for some time, Merrill, and in that capacity you made several discoveries. The most remarkable discovery was made when Sergeant Smith came to blackmail my father.' "'Oh, don't pretend you didn't know that John Minnet was my father,' he said in answer to the look of amazement on Frank Merrill's face. "'Smith took you into his confidence, and you married his alleged daughter.' John Minnett discovered this fact, not that he was aware that it was his own daughter, or that he thought that your association with my sister was any more than an intrigue beneath the dignity of his nephew. You did not think the time was ripe to spring a son-in-law upon him, and so you waited until you had seen his will. In that will he made no mention of a daughter, because the child had been born after his wife had left him, and he refused to recognize his paternity. Later, in some doubt as to whether he was doing an injustice to what might have been his own child, he endeavoured to find her. Had you known of these investigations, you could have helped considerably, but as it happened you did not. You married her because you thought you would get a share of John Minnett's millions, and when you found your plan had miscarried you planned an act of bigamy in order to secure a portion of Mr. Minnet's fortune, which you knew would be considerable. He turned to Saul Arthur Mann you think I have not been very energetic in pursuing my inquiries as to who killed John Minnet? There is the explanation of my tolerance. He pointed his finger at Frank. This man is the husband of my sister. To ruin him would have meant involving her in that ruin. For a time I thought they were happily married. It was only recently that I have discovered the truth. Frank shook his head. I don't know whether to laugh or cry, he said. I have certainly not heard... "'You will hear more,' said Jasper Cole. "'I will tell you how the murder was committed "'and who was the mysterious Rex Holland.' "'Your father was a forger. "'That is known. "'You also have been forging signatures since you were a boy. "'You were Rex Holland. "'You came to Eastbourne on the night of the murder, "'and by an ingenious device you secured evidence in your favour in advance. "'Pretending to have lost your ticket, "'you allowed station officials to search you and to testify that you had no weapon.' You were dropped at the gate of my father's house, and as soon as the cab driver had disappeared, you made your way to where you had hidden your car in a field at a short distance from the house. You had arrived there earlier in the evening, and had made your way across the meadows to Polgate Junction, where you joined the train. As you had taken the precaution to have your return ticket clipped in London, your trick was not discovered. You had regained your car, and drove up to the house ten minutes after you had been seen to disappear through the gateway. From your car you had taken the revolver, and with that revolver you murdered my father. In order to shield yourself you threw suspicion on me and made friends with one of the shrewdest men. He inclined his head toward the speechless Mr. Mann, and through him conveyed those suspicions to authoritative quarters. It was you who, having said farewell to Miss Nuttall in Geneva, reappeared the same evening at Montreux and wrote a note forging my handwriting. It was you who left a torn sheet of paper in the room at number 69 Flowerton Road, also in your writing. You have never moved a step but that I have followed you. My agents have been with you day and night ever since the day of the murder. I have waited my time, and that has come now." Frank heaved a long sigh and took up his hat. "'Tomorrow morning I shall have a story to tell,' he said. "'You are an excellent actor,' said Jasper, "'and an excellent liar.' but you have never deceived me." He flung open the door. "'There is your road. You have twenty thousand pounds which my father left you. You have some fifty-five thousand pounds which you buried on the night of the murder. You remember the gardener's trowel in the car?' he said, turning to man. "'I give you twenty-four hours to leave England. We cannot try you for the murder of John Minnet. You can still be tried for the murder of your unfortunate servants.' Frank Merrill made no movement toward the door. He walked over to the other end of the room and stood with his back to them. Then he turned. Sometimes, he said, I feel that it isn't worth while going on. It has been rather a strain, all this. Jasper Cole sprang toward him and caught him as he fell. They laid him down, and Saul Arthur Mann called urgently on the telephone for a doctor, but Frank Merrill was dead. I knew said Constable Wiseman, when the story came to him. End of chapter seventeen End of the Man Who Knew By Edgar Wallace.